The scripture reading for today comes from Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 23. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account to himself of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, let's start with prayer, folks. Lord, we do long for that day when you'll, you'll come and, and establish that righteousness we thirst for. And uh, Lord, looking at the world now, there are so many problems, so many spots where unrighteousness is just making itself so obvious. Father, we pray for the country of Myanmar and for the, um, the people there who are fighting to uh, get the military to give back the democracy that the, the country has. Uh, Lord, that uh, the protests are, are pushing back against the military junta, and we pray, Father, that you would grant them success, that the military would back down and reestablish the democratic process they have there. But in the midst of all of that, Lord, we pray for your church. We pray that your church would be in times of peace, in times of struggle, Lord, in times of freedom and, and in uh, times of oppression, Lord, that they, she would be faithful with the gospel that you've given her. Lord, that the individual believers would be walking in integrity in the midst of all of this. And Lord, it, it is better for the church um, to be able to freely preach the gospel. Um, so we pray that uh, you would resolve the situation in Myanmar. And then, Father, we think of uh, China and the oppression against the Uyghur people there. Uh, Lord, in avowedly atheistic government is persecuting the religious, whether that is Muslim or Christian or Buddhists, they are, they're persecuting them, they're opposing them. And so, Lord, because we want people to be able to freely um, engage in religion so that the gospel can come in and be shown to be superior to all those other ones, Lord, we pray for peace in, in uh, China. Lord, we, we pray for the church there that she would be um, consistent and faithful. Lord, we pray for the deliverance of the Uyghur people for the, uh, their basic human rights. Lord, even though they are Muslim, they're created in your image and are worthy of respect and, and care, not uh, oppression and labor camps. So, Lord, we pray that that, um, that unrighteousness would end soon as well. And so, uh, Father, we, we just look forward to that day when Christ returns and the rightful king sits on the throne of all the nations. And until then, Lord, would you help us to work for that, uh, to, to strive for that justice, for that peace that uh, we know is coming. And Lord, to that end, we pray that you would be with us now as we turn to Romans 14. Uh, Lord, this, this righteousness, this justice, this peace needs to begin in your household and spread out from there. And so would you show us, Lord, how we can live together, how we can, um, how we can have and, and exhibit unity that, that proceeds from faith. And so Lord, give us uh, your spirit in extra measure this morning to hear and to understand. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. So um, we're finishing chapter 14 and really verses 10 through 13 um, 
connect with the message from last week. They're, they're kind of a good bridge. So that seemed like a, a good place to kind of give us a chance to back up and to move forward because it does introduce this section as well. So last week we talked about how do you get along with people you largely agree with? And what we found there was that it takes a degree of humility and, and self-examination and, um, and concern for the other, looking outside your own needs. And, and really that's where this section goes as well. Um, but where he starts in here uh, with verses 10 through 13 is uh, he's, Paul is showing us why we should seek uh, uh, unity, harmony, why we should seek that, that Christian harmony that we have in the church. The next section, which is 13 through 19, he's going to show us how both sides live in harmony together. And then finally, in the end, 20 through 23, he's going to show us how both sides can be right in this discussion. Uh, so how we, uh, why we should seek harmony, how we live in harmony, and why both sides can be okay. Uh, that's that's our, our kind of outline today as we look at unity proceeding from faith. So verses 10 through 13, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand at the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So what he's talking about here is, is notice he says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Well, we automatically think of the, the one who's weak in faith. Or why do you despise your brother? And remember last week we saw that was the one who didn't have a problem eating. So what Paul is doing now is he's beginning to grab those two different parties, pull them together and treat them as one. And, and that's really what happens in uh, this first section is he is drawing them together and showing that they really have the same problem. So if you can't get past judging your brother or despising your brother, the first thing to notice is that's your brother. The one who is weak in faith is the brother. The one who doesn't have a problem eating, that's a brother. We are united first and foremost as family. Now, I know families don't always get along and brothers and sisters fight, but um, I know for me, my older sister picked on me mercilessly and, and I wrestled with her all the time. But a friend of mine said, yeah, she's kind of a jerk and I about punched him out. You don't talk about my sister that way. And so uh, we may wrestle, but boy, don't, don't anybody else come after me. So when we look at this, where we're judging and, and despising each other, this is a family problem. And we can wrestle with our brother and sister, but boy, don't, don't be like that. Why? Well, if I can put it simply, because dad's looking, dad's watching. Because what he says next is, for we will all stand at the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. So what he tells us here is, we will face judgment. We will stand at the judgment seat of God. So, because we're going to do that, don't judge your brother or despise your brother. Now you see how it's, we're all equal here. There's, there's no um, uh, one who's weaker and one who's more mature or anything like that. We're, we're standing at the judgment seat of God. Everybody's equal. So this really raises a huge theological question about the issue of, are Christians going to be judged? And so just to keep it simple, yes, we will face judgment. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 8, Paul says, We are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So when Paul quotes um, Isaiah in that section, uh, it's Isaiah um, 45, um, in, in the context of Isaiah 45, he's addressing all the nations. Uh, that's what he says is to all the ends of the earth, you will bow and you will confess. And I have, I always think of that as the, the time when Jesus returns, then every tongue is going to bow or every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. And I always think of them, but what Paul's doing here is he's taking that and applying it to the church. We will do that as well. We will all, all means uh, every, every knee and every tongue means every. When in 2 Corinthians, when he says we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, all means all. That means everybody. So when we approach that, what happens with the Christian? Well, Romans 8.1 promises us 
for now there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. So then what happens at the judgment seat? What happens at the judgment seat is exactly what Paul says, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So all our works are presented before God at that judgment seat, and they're, they're offered to him, and the judgment happens. This was bad. This was good. And so that's how we receive the, the, the idea is receiving our reward or, or our, um, our eternal um, gifts or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but how does that fit for a Christian since we're not condemned? Well, I, it's a complex thing, but I think a modernized version of the uh, London Baptist Confession says it pretty well. This is how it describes what happens. Believers are accepted through Christ, and their good works are also accepted in him. This acceptance does not mean our good works are completely blameless in God's sight. Instead, God views them in his son, and so he is pleased to accept and reward them, even though they are done in weakness and imperfections. So we are justified by faith in Christ, and so are our good works. So when we go and we face God, what he's saying is, how did you handle, what did you do with what I had given you? If you are making your brother, uh, if you were there passing judgment on your brother or despising your brother, you'll have to give an account for that. You'll have to explain to the judge while you're standing there, why you judged instead of allowing him to. So this is the problem. This is really an issue that Paul brings up is he, he wants us to remember we're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And what we've done, whether good or bad, will be judged. So don't go there and have to explain to him why you judged a person that he has redeemed, why you put yourself in his position to despise someone um, who God has accepted. Don't, don't go there and find that's the place to be. So Ideally, we should do these things because of love, uh, because we have a love for our brother, because we have a love for God and for those he saved. But if you can't get there, if that's not where your heart's at just yet, then Paul offers you this remedy, then realize judgment. And when he brings up the issue of judgment for the Christian, what's implied there is our justification by faith. We will stand before the judgment seat of Christ justified by his blood, justified by his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so that kind of backs us into love, because what we see is when you stop and you analyze and you take a look at the works that you've done in the body, whether good or bad, you kind of shudder. I, I've, I've been nowhere good enough. I am so thankful that I am justified by faith alone. And that springs begins to spring up in us a love for God. You have done this for me. Thank you for justifying me. Even though I will face you one day, thank you for justifying me. And then maybe we can start to back into that love for others as well. So it's kind of a, a sharp shock to get your attention. We will be judged, but we're justified by faith. And so there's, there's still that hope. So let, what we're hoping for is what Paul had said earlier, let love be genuine. And, and judgment is part of God's motivation to do that. So that's why we should live in harmony. That takes on last week and draws all that in. Now let's look at the question of how both sides live in harmony. How do we live in harmony? So verses 13 through 19, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So therefore, ties it right back to you will be judged uh, to that last phrase, which is, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another. So that's, that's the motivating factor. But rather to decide not to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of the brother. So this is where Paul is really kind of blending the two groups, the, the weaker in faith and the one who's more mature, blends them together. Because when we think of passing judgment, we had been thinking of the one who's weak in faith. They were the ones who passed judgment. Um, but then he says, never put a stumbling block in the way or the hindrance in the way of a brother. Well, that was what the person who could eat meat was doing. But they kind of blend into one issue here. They, they kind of come together. So here's what's going on is that stumbling block is what's going to lead a person to sin. So for the one who is weak in faith and can't eat this particular thing, um, when they begin to nag the one who has the, you know, who's fine with eating, they're putting a stumbling block in front of that brother. 
because that brother is now going to begin to despise them or welcome them in just to argue or something like that and exhibit their strength. And it puts a stumbling block in front of them because now they're beginning to sin by despising their brother or arguing with their brother or, um, or standing against their brother. It, it is a form of judgment. And then the weaker brother, the one who's weaker in faith, says, I, I'm, I'm not comfortable with you doing that. Well, the one who has no problems with it, hey, sit down and let's eat. Here's your veggies. Here, I'm having a big steak. That puts a stumbling block in front of that other brother because now they may be tempted or led into doing something that they really believe is wrong. So he blends the two together. The, the root problem in both cases is you're both being judgmental. One is judging the brother for his liberty. The other one is judging the person unworthy or worthless or despising them. And so that's a problem that we commonly share. So verse 14, here's the, here's the answer here. He's, Paul says, I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean to the one who thinks it is unclean. So, wow, that's, that's pretty heavy duty. That's, that's a big issue here. Uh, first, what we need to do is understand what is clean, why it's all clean now, and how it can be unclean to somebody who thinks it's unclean. So let's, let's take a look at this. This idea of cleanliness was part of the Mosaic law, and it was instituted in order to keep Israel separate. And I'll prove that out in a moment. So remember the history of Israel. God made a promise to Abraham. In his seed would the nations be blessed. That was the original promise to Abraham. And so to accomplish that, God needed to keep Abraham's seed in place until that promise of blessing came to everyone. So Abraham has Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael is not part of the, the covenant. I, um, Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael. Isaac has uh, Jacob and Esau. Esau is not part of the covenant. But Jacob then has 12 sons. He has multiple children, not just two at a time. He has multiples. And what you see there is beginning, God is beginning to build that nation that he promised to Abraham. Well, as the nation begins to grow, there's a danger that they're going to blend in with the cultures around them. We saw that uh, as a real problem when uh, they're near Shechem and Dinah is courted by the, the king of or the uh, prince of Shechem. There's this danger of them blending. And so God needs to begin to take steps to keep them isolated, to keep them a unique people. Where he goes with that is eventually he brings a famine on the world. He sells Joseph into slavery, but then raises him to the second most powerful person in all of Egypt, stores up food to save the world, including his family. And so when his family comes into Egypt to get food, what, what Joseph tells him is when you meet Pharaoh and he asks, what do you do? I want you to tell him that you're shepherds. It's not a lie. They were shepherds. But he says, bring that up. That's the main issue that I want you to bring up. Why was that? That's because the Egyptians detested shepherds. They were so picky about cleanliness. They, they wanted to have everything just right. And so they didn't like the shepherds because they smelled bad and they, they hung around with these sheep and they were just so Pharaoh in his magnanimity, magnanimity says, go settle anywhere you want. And Joseph says, we'll take Goshen. Goshen would be a perfect place for the flocks. It was a nice well-watered place. And the Egyptians didn't really care for it that much. So what you see is God moves them in and segregates them. The people that they're now in the midst of don't like them. And so they kind of are off on their own. Well, what happens is those Egyptians, since they've segregated the, the Hebrews, begin to despise them and eventually decide that they are sub-Egyptian and maybe enslaved. And so in, in their slavery, God is fulfilling what he had told Abraham. In his covenant promise, he said, you will be slaves in a nation that's not your own for 400 years until I come and get you. What we saw when we went through the book of Exodus was while they're isolated, while they're kept insulated from Egyptian culture, they begin to multiply. God had blessed them and the nation grows and grows and grows. And so finally, when the 400 years is up, God delivers them and he leads them out of Egypt. He's going to take them to the land that he promised to Abraham. That's, that's his goal is to bring them into that land. But while they're on their way, God is giving them his law. He's giving him, here are the rules. How will God keep them separate, a unique, a distinct people when they're in Canaan? What will prevent them from blending in and just disappearing with the others? What will prevent them from uniting with those others? Well, that's where the issue of cleanliness comes in. 
And cleanliness is, is separate from sin. You could sin by intentionally being unclean, but uncleanliness was not necessarily a category of sin. And the two big areas where you think of that separation that God gives them is in the Sabbath and how they, how they um, observe the Sabbath and in their food. And that's where you really see the cleanliness issue come out is in what food was clean and what food was unclean. So when they get to the land, they're supposed to remain a unique people, distinct because of these cultural practices that God had given them in the law. Doesn't work out so well. They begin to blend in. They kind of forget the rules. And so God sends them into exile. Now, when you read the, the books of the exile, which would be um, Daniel, Esther, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, these are books that primarily focus on the time when Israel is in exile. What you see is they are a unique people. There is something really different about them. Um, they won't worship these gods of the uh, Babylonians. They have one God that they'll worship, and they will only worship him at one place, and that's the temple in Jerusalem. They, they have food issues. They, Daniel and, and his three friends will not eat the food that they're given. They, they say, that's not clean for me. I can't eat that. So just repeat it over and over again. The Jews stand out as something different. So when they come back into the land, that's a big issue for them is, is who is and who is not a Jew. Um, if they married in with the rest of the nations, then they're not part of the, the, the tribe. They're not part of the company. By the time we get to the New Testament, when, when Jesus shows up, this has turned into a huge issue of racism. The, the Jews not only consider themselves to be separate, but now they look down on everybody else and, and are, are separated in a really unwholesome way. And, and they're, they're, they think others are inferior and that kind of thing. But Jesus has come. And what was the whole point of the separation? The issue, the issue of cleanliness and uncleanliness was to keep them separate. Why? Because of the Abrahamic promise that the seed of Abraham would come and bless the nations. That seed of Abraham is Jesus, Galatians chapter 3. So once Jesus has come, now that issue of cleanliness is done. So Mark chapter 7, um, Jesus is talking about what enters the heart and what comes out of a man and what makes him clean and unclean. And in verse 19, Mark just inserts this phrase, thus he declared all foods clean. So that issue of cleanliness is no longer applicable once Jesus has come. That, that's not an issue. But that distinction between unclean, unclean and clean is so deeply rooted in the Jews, it takes them quite a while to get it. Um, they don't really understand the implications of it. So Acts chapter 10 and 11, right? In Acts, God has told the church, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts of the earth. They're going to spread out. And that's exactly how we saw pro, uh, the story progress in Acts, was their witnesses in Jerusalem until persecution arises and pushes them out. So once they're pushed out, Peter starts moving north, and he winds up in the city of Joppa at a friend's house until he has this vision, a vision of a sheet being lowered in front of him three times with all kinds of animals in it, and he's commanded, rise, kill, and eat. And his response three times over and over again is, I would never let any unclean food touch my lips. I can't do this. But what happens is that wasn't about unclean foods. And you can tell because Peter's response, when Cornelius sends messengers to him and he goes to them, he's now in a Gentile's house and not just any old Gentile, a military commander, one of the occupying force, he's in his house. And this is what he said. Acts chapter 10, verses, beginning of verse 28. He said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. That's not true. That's not in, that's not in the law. That was Jewish additions to the law saying, well, you can't intermarry, therefore this. But he says, you know how unlawful it is. And then he goes on, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. That food issue, Peter rejected, I, I can't eat that. The lesson he learned is nobody is unclean. So this is where Paul gets that idea. Everything is clean. In Christ, everything is clean. The issue of clean and unclean has been resolved because the Messiah has come. And, and the message now is not just to Israel, it's going out to the nations. Therefore, those barricades need to come down. So everything is clean in Christ. But, Paul goes on, it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. So if everything's clean 
and I think one thing is not clean. Why is it unclean? Um, it's unclean to them. It's not unclean to everybody. And so really what's going on in that, and we'll, un we'll unpack that in the last section more, but let me just introduce it here, is those distinctions are taken away. But if you still have an issue with it, it is a matter of your conscience. And so that's why it is unclean to you. Um, you who are weaker in the faith and have things that you think are wrong, um, it's for you. It's not for everybody. You don't get to decide that for everyone. So don't judge your brother on that. Don't, don't despise them for that. But where Paul goes in verse 15 is he takes it the other way. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. So you who are weaker in faith, don't think that your issue of cleanliness with this particular thing applies to everybody because you're bothered by it. But you who are stronger in faith, you who don't have that same problem, he says, don't grieve your brother by what you eat. Why? Because you're no longer walking in love. And that's what Paul has been talking about since chapter 12. Let love be genuine. So he wants us to walk in love, to, to love not only God, but our brother and sister in Christ. And that's, that's what you're not doing when you say, oh, you don't, you don't eat pork? Well, here, here's a salad, and you, you gnaw on some bacon in front of them. Um, that's, that's cruel because bacon is wonderful, and, and they're not getting to enjoy it. But it's also not loving your brother. It's not caring about what, they, what offends them, what they feel they need to do. So in Philippians, Paul explains how we should do this. What should this look like to walk in love, to love your brother? Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. How do we do that? Have, it, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself to becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. How do you do that? How do you walk in love with your brother? How do you, how do you have the humility to say, if that offends you, I won't do it in front of you? This is yours. This mind is yours, which is yours in Christ. So it goes back to looking to Jesus. Jesus did this on, on our behalf. So we should emulate him. That's what God is drawing us to. Remember, sanctification is growing in that genuine love, growing in grace, growing more like Jesus. So we, Jesus has done this. Surely we can. So that's what we talk about when we're talking about sanctification. So what does that look like in practical terms? Eating is not such a big issue as it was in the first century. If, you're, if your brother's conscience is wounded about something, you should ache with him, even if you don't have a problem with it. If they have a problem with listening to that kind of music or watching that kind of TV show or movie, drinking that kind of drink, reading those kinds of books, voting that way, if they have a problem with that and it wounds them when they see somebody do that, then it should make you ache as well. You should desire for them to not be wounded by those things. Don't flaunt it in their face. Don't rub it in their face and say, I'm, I'm free to do this. That's not walking in love. It's selfish. It's selfish ambition. It's saying my point of view is more important, more significant than yours. So that doesn't mean that you have to stop just because somebody has an issue with it. But it does mean you should stop doing it in front of them. Don't do that. Why? Because by what you eat, you do not want to destroy the one for whom Christ died. And here's the issue. Here's the crux of the thing. When you're walking in love, you're walking in love for God, for Jesus. Look at what you have done for me. And if you love him, you love what he loves. If he has given himself for that weaker brother, then you don't want to go and rub that other brother's face in it because it's offending the one who's redeemed him. He's, he's offending the one who bought him. Are you walking in love or are you causing him to stumble? And, and that's the problem is, is you have to love God and then love your neighbor too. So in verse 16, he says, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. So I don't have a problem with this one particular thing and, and I enjoy it. I think, I think it's, it's, it's got some 
enjoyable aspects to it. But my brother is bothered by that. I don't want to flaunt it in front of him and listen to him disparage it and count it down. Don't let it be counted as evil. Because you, if you enjoy it, if it's good, here's the real thing. Here's where it comes down to, verse 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is at stake here. This is what's going on. So we have to rehearse again, what is a kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is not a people. It's not the church. It's not a geographical area. Um, George Eldon Ladd, in his book, The Gospel of the Kingdom, says it this way. He says, the kingdom of God is his kingship, his rule, his authority. When this is once realized, you can go through the New Testament and find passage after passage where this meaning is evident, where the kingdom is not a realm or a people, but God's reign. Jesus said, we must receive the kingdom of God like little children. What is received? The church? Heaven? What is received is God's rule. And the example that he gives to show that is from Luke chapter 19. Jesus tells a parable. He says, a noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom. So does that mean where he was was not his kingdom? Well, it wasn't yet because he hadn't received his kingdom, but it was a place that he ruled over. And then he goes on, he says, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So as the man leaves, some people come and say, we don't want him. And his servants, he puts in charge and he says, now take care of this. When he returned, verse 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, now he returns to the exact same people, the exact same place he was, but he returns with a kingdom, with his authority to rule and to reign. So that's what we mean by the kingdom of God. So what does Paul say here? He says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking. It, the kingdom of God is not a matter of rules to live by. It, it's not a, a, a matter of, should I watch this or not watch that? Should I listen to this or not listen to that? That's not what the kingdom of God is. It's that, but it is so much better than that. What is it? The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. As Jesus rules us, as his authority is asserted over us, as his kingdom comes upon us, it is not about the nitpicky little rules. They show up in a different place. It is about righteousness. There is righteousness within the kingdom. There are things you cannot do. They are unrighteous things to do. There are things you can do. They're fine. But it's righteousness. It is justification and sanctification through faith in the context that we've been learning. That's where righteousness comes from. It's peace. Can you imagine what it would be like if we actually lived consistently like this? Caring for each other, being humble, saying, no, your, your concerns are more important than my own. Um, the, the, the way that would look would be this beautiful overflowing peace, this peace that just would not make sense to other people. And it's joy. Joy is not constant mirth. It's not chronic laughter but it is a gladness of heart that weathers many griefs and pains because we have an eye to what's coming because we're not devastated by what we have now. So this is what the kingdom of God is. This is the rule that God wishes to establish is righteousness that he's given us and he's causing us to grow in peace that we will live together in harmony and a joy that can't be snatched. But none of this is natural. It's all supernatural because it is all in the Holy Spirit. It is the spirit that God has given us that generates this righteousness, peace, and joy. It's all in the Holy Spirit. That is the kingdom of God. That's, where, that's what it looks like. So verse 18, whoever there thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by man. So if you serve Jesus in this way, you're acceptable to God and you're approved by man. So acceptable to God, because what it shows is not your righteousness, you're righteous enough to save yourself. What it shows is you have been redeemed by Christ and are growing in the faith that he's given. You're, you're acceptable to God, but you're also approved by man. What does it mean by approved by man? The, the church has often been disapproved and rejected. Well, it's not saying that everybody will love you if you're a Christian. There's plenty of evidence that's not the case. But what it does is that idea of being approved by God and accepted by man it begins to hint at what the kingdom will look like when it comes in its fullness. 
So it's God's kingdom, so he will like that. But it's also God's kingdom in this world. It's how the world is supposed to be, but currently isn't. So you can reflect on the injustice in the world. We prayed for the persecution of the Uyghurs, the military coup in Myanmar, the insurrection here in, on January 6th. On and on it goes. There's all of these things that shouldn't be like this. They feel wrong. What they're all doing is they're anticipating the reign of Jesus on this earth. To be in heaven is far better than to be here. But to be here is not finished state yet. And God doesn't just erase the entire universe as if it never happened when Jesus returns. What will happen is he'll return and this earth will be made right. The right king will be on the throne. The king who should be ruling will sit, be seated on the throne. Righteousness will actually happen in this world because the righteous king will be there judging. A king who can see into men's hearts. So when we say approved by God or uh, acceptable to God and approved by man, in a general sense, there is something that we feel is right about living the way that uh, we should in the church with love and respect for each other, care for each other. There, there's something that feels right about that because our hearts are aching for that return, for Jesus' return, for Jesus' rule. That's what we're longing for. So then Paul admonishes us in verse 19, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Um, he's, he's, he's reminding us of this kingdom that's coming. He's pointing us towards it. And then he's saying, now let's strive toward that reality. We don't, have to, we don't just sit on our hands and wait. Well, we're not going to do anything until Jesus shows up. There's plenty of parables that Jesus told about the master returning and finding the, the servants idle or... Um, uh, abusing each other or something like that, and they get smacked. They're, they're in bad shape. That's not what he says. He says, let us pursue what makes for that peace. Let, let's work toward that end. That reality that's only going to come when Jesus comes, we can begin to work towards that even now. So let's strive toward that reality and for mutual upbuilding. Remember at the beginning, we said he's addressing both the weaker brother, the one who's weak in faith, and the one who doesn't have a problem eating, now he's saying, look, both of you, both of you together work for mutual upbuilding, build each other up, strive to make each other um, uh, better than you are now, work towards those things. That mutual upbuilding is for all of us. Each one of us has a role in that. You don't have to have a title or a position or a paycheck to do those things. Um, we need to look to each other, not to the pastor or the elders or the deacons or the, the ministry that we love or something like that. This is a commandment to all of us to build each other up. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers. He's given us gifted people in the church to do something. What? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's all of our job. And then he says, for the building up of the body of Christ, mutual upbuilding. He has given you leaders and teachers and others to demonstrate this, but it is for the work of the saints to do, to build each other up. So both sides are to be involved in this. They, they need to both work to this end, mutual upbuilding. So how are we supposed to do this? When one person says this is a wrong thing to do and another person says it's fine, how can both sides be right in this? So this is where I want to go back and unpack that if it's unclean for somebody. Well, listen to how the, he says this. He says, verses 20 and 21, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother, brother to stumble. So he goes back and he says, Everything is clean. It's all right. But it's not good to destroy the work of God. Christ has redeemed this person. He died for this person. And you're going to come in and you're going to flout your, your, um, your freedom in front of them and destroy them. We'll, we'll, let's keep going. We'll understand what he means by destroy them. It's not good to eat or drink or anything that causes your brother to stumble. Well, what does it mean to, to stumble? What does that look like? We'll see that in a second. What he's warning us here is don't be selfish. Have that mind of Christ that is available to you. Verse 22, he says, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. 
This, should, this is the verse for the secularists who say, keep your faith out of the public square. Whatever is between you and God, keep it to yourself, which is exactly not what he means here. What he means here is he's addressing the eaters, the ones who don't have a problem. And he says, don't flaunt it in front of the others. That's just what he's been talking about. That, that's what he means. It's between you and God. Thank God that you have the liberty to do this thing that you enjoy, that somebody else's is not okay. Keep it between you and yourself and God. Don't flaunt it in front of your brother. Don't, he's not saying don't ever talk about your faith in public, though. So delight in what God has given you. Thank God for giving you that. Have, if you have faith to eat all things, to listen to that music, watch that movie, read those books, wonderful. But don't use it to destroy your brother. So here's how we get to this. We're working toward that point. How, what do we do about that brother? What does that mean that he has a problem? Whoever doubts is condemned if he eats, because eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And that's the answer. That's the problem. And here, here's where we go with this. So in this context, he says, whatever, you, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. What does he mean by faith, given the context of Romans? Well, in the context of Romans, that faith is trusting that Jesus' righteousness is good enough to cover us. We are justified by faith. It covers our wickedness. It covers all of that. So what he's saying here is anything that does not proceed, anything that doesn't come out of a position of saying my righteousness is found in Christ alone, if it's not covered by that, it's sin. Because you're not saying that Jesus has covered that thing. Therefore, it's not right for me to do. Whatever Jesus, whatever we can't conceive of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection covering is sin. So there are many things that are outside of the bounds for Christian people to indulge in. And that bound that we think of, that line where you say that's not something a Christian should do, for a younger Christian, for somebody new in the faith, that bound is pretty big. There's a lot of stuff in there. And then as we grow, we come to understand what's justified means and that, that boundary begins to shrink. So, for example, uh, back in the 80s and 90s, um, when friends would become Christians, they would often destroy their music collection. There was a, a guy I worked with before I was a believer who became a Christian and he took his CDs out in the, in the woods and shot them, uh, put a rifle bullet right through them. Um, that's because they were looking at what those the, what that music represented to them at that point in their life and said, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm putting that away. So for them, it would be sin for them to put that, that Led Zeppelin album back on and listen to it because it so wounded their conscience. I don't want the life that that represented. There was a family who visited a church we attended, and he, the husband, had been a rock and roll drummer. He'd been a drummer in a, in a rock band. And so for him... Music was a deeply sensitive issue. It was really something that hit very personally to him. And so he couldn't separate Christian music from the music of his past. And so what he wanted in a musical arrangement was very limited. Someone on the piano and everybody singing. And that was it. If there was too much uh, instrumentation, if the songs were too boisterous, he probably preferred hymns then that, was, that would take him back to his life before Christ. And so for him, it was a very difficult thing. It was hard for him to do. And so he couldn't attend our church. And, and that's unfortunate, um, but I, I, I kind of understand where he was coming from. I, I can you know, sympathize. If it's too hard, then don't do it. If it's going to lead you to sin, then don't do that thing. But let's ask a question of that. Does the New Testament define how big a worship band should or should not be? doesn't really define it. Does it describe or, or proscribe or prohibit drums? Doesn't say anything about it. How about electric guitars? Well, a folk guitar is okay, but an electric guitar is too, too much. The New Testament is silent on that. What about saxophones? Now, I, I think a banjo might be too much, but even then it could be done well. So the, the New Testament is silent on that. That's a matter of your opinion. So if it proceeds from faith, it's not sin. But for this gentleman, it was really an issue. The, the issue there is the Bible doesn't define it because it needs to be culturally transparent. The church needs to be, operate, be able to operate in any culture, places where drums are frowned on and places where drums are front and center. It's an indifferent thing. So it would be wrong for him to attend a church with a large worship band. It would be sin to him. His conscience is wounded by that. 
He can't see that the justification of Jesus has covered that. Or even if he can see it, he can't feel it. He can't, it hasn't sunk into his heart yet. Other people go, hey, yeah, that's covered, man. That, that doesn't matter. I'm not justified by the size of my worship band. I'm not not justified by the size of my worship band. Whatever does not proceed from our justification is sin. Here's another theoretical example. Can a Christian read or watch a horror story? Is that okay? Some Christians, churches, and ministries say, no, never. It, it glorifies horrible things. Personally, my take is I think it depends on the horror story. I think it's possible for a horror story to be redemptive. You have to ask the question, does this glorify cruelty? Does it glorify evil? Um, one of the other questions that to ask those these days is, how is evil defeated? Is it defeated by weapons or technology or just the strongman punching it out? That's probably not a redemptive issue. But there are other ways that it could be. So, for example, the movie The Quiet Place, that's fairly recent. It's a horror story about an alien invasion where the aliens are killing people. If they hear you, they kill you. But the story ends with this beautiful redemptive ending that, that I don't want to spoil in case you want to see it, but it, it ends in this way that is just, I thought was just beautiful. It really made me stop. Uh, older movie, the movie Cloverfield. It's a, it's a monster invading New York story. But at the heart of the story, at the very center of that story is a love story, a man facing incredible danger, rushing to get to the woman he loves, to rescue her, to redeem her, to pull her out, to save her. The movie Signs, which is even older than that, it's, it's, it's a story of an alien invasion. But in the end, what the movie is about is faith. It's about a man who, who finally comes to realize that God has been active in this horrible situation, working in ways that he's been angry at God about in order to save his family. It's about a sovereign, loving God in the midst of an evil situation. So is it okay for a Christian to watch a horror movie? Is it okay for you to watch a horror movie? I think in general, there's nothing in the scriptures that say don't do that. Although there are some things that we should keep in mind when we're making these decisions. Philippians 4.8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. So be careful with it. There are some that are, that are truly horrible. Uh, another example, is it ever right for a Christian to view pornography? Now, everybody in the room should be going, nope, all right, you've crossed the line there. Yeah, it's never okay. That's not all right. Why? Because it, it, it is an area that has been sanctified, and it's, it's an area that's not been sanctified because it is in direct contradiction to the righteous use of sex. God has established that from the very beginning of creation. It's in the bounds of marriage. Pornography goes beyond that. It goes, extends beyond that. You can't indulge in pornography and be okay. That, that's clearly something that goes beyond, and, and it is a New Testament issue. But you can delude yourself into thinking so. Yeah, possibly you could, you could delude yourself into making excuses for that, but you shouldn't. All right, let's, let's take it one step further. Another practical issue. What about nudity and art? Michelangelo's David is nude. Is that okay? Um, it might be. It might not be. It depends on you. How do you feel about that? If that stirs in you something that is wrong, then it would be wise. It would be best for you not to participate in it. Um, especially maybe somebody who came from a history of having a real huge problem with pornography. Nudity and art might just set off all kinds of bells and whistles in them. Then fine, don't do that. If it doesn't proceed from faith, it's sin. In all of these things, there are lines not to cross. But what has to happen is it has to proceed from faith. And, and it has to be informed faith, not just what I feel like. So do not, for the sake of food or films, art or music, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats or watches or listens to. It's not good to eat meat, drink wine, or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between you and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. So then, 
Let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. How is it that that person can say, this is unclean to me, or this is sin to me, and be right when the other person says, I think that's perfectly okay, and they're right. It's because of faith. What have you trusted Jesus enough? Have you grown enough to see he has sanctified these things? They were, they were a problem for me before, but he's, he's rescued me from that. And my righteousness does not depend on how I, I respond to those things anymore. As you're growing in faith, the, the lure that those things had will begin to fade. Christ will wean you off of those sins. And so that, that boundary begins to shrink a little bit. There's still a boundary. It doesn't disappear. It doesn't mean everything, you know, go indulge yourself. But it's not that every single thing is a sin. And so sometimes those boundaries are in different places for different Christians. There's even ways that they could be a strong Christian, a Christian who has the faith to eat, maybe has a problem with music. So we can have areas where we're given and taken. It's not this perfect round circle. It's, it's much more complex. But Paul's point here is don't destroy that one. Live in harmony. Understand that that brother has a problem with that issue that you don't have a problem with. Respect that. Now, hopefully what will happen as we are living together in this, that brother will grow. His faith will not remain weak in that area. But the idea is we're supposed to be upbuilding, right? Mutual upbuilding. We should be drawing each other together, drawing us each other into more and more trust in Christ. Demonstrating that, walking in that, teaching that, preaching that, living it but it's the responsibility of all of us. It's not just your pastor, elders, and deacons who are responsible for this. It's all of us. And so that's where Paul is taking us. He's constantly, he's asking us, please consider living in light of your justification by faith in a way that does not alienate, destroy, or weaken your brother. Don't make somebody do something they believe sincerely, honestly, is wrong simply because they see you doing it. I think it is absolutely wrong to watch this movie, but I'm going to watch it because he is. If that person has that feeling, you are causing them to sin and don't do that. So that's, that's where he takes us is this is the life that we live together so that we're all growing together into the image of Christ. Let's close in prayer. Lord, give us a sensitive spirit for those who are weaker than us. Those who, who don't understand the same things that we do. Lord, give us a patient spirit for those who think some things are okay that we're uncomfortable with. But Lord, in all things, I pray that you would remind the church that together we work to grow into the image of Christ. We have been saved into one body. We are brothers in Christ. And so Lord, let us remind, remind us to think of each other as better than ourselves, to have the mind of Christ in us and to live in accordance with that so that we will please God and the world will see that and, and approve of it. We'll say there is something unique and different about the church, that we would take no offense against each other, that we would not be obnoxious to those around us, but Lord, that we would live in peace, anticipating the time when you return, Jesus. We ask this in anticipation of that, looking forward to the day of your return. In Christ's name, amen.